What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. This is Anthony. And this is James. And today we're going to be taking a look at the film Get Out, which was written and directed in 2017 by Jordan Peele. It's about a young African-American man who visits his white girlfriend's parents' house for the weekend, where his simmering uneasiness about the reception of him eventually reaches a boiling point. This film stars Daniel Kaluuya, Allison Williams, Bradley Whitford, Catherine Keener, Lakeith Stanfield, Betty Gabriel, Marcus Henderson, Lil Ray Howery, and Caleb Landry Jones. It won the Oscar for Best Original Screenplay and was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, and Best Directing. The best way to support our show is to become a patron on patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast, where you'll get perks like personalized messages, videos, our podcast schedule so you know what to watch to prepare for the episodes, and top-tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to our brand new website, RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to find all of our content, to get a hold of all of our merch, which is up now. You can buy all your new products from RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com. Check it out. I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peele. I love Key and Peele. I think it's the best sketch comedy show since Dave Chappelle's Chappelle show. And when it was announced that Jordan Peele was making a film, I assumed it was going to be a comedy because their film Keanu with Keegan as well. That was a comedy. They didn't direct that, but um, they co-wrote that script. Um, and then when it came out with Get Out, I was blown away, surprised, shocked, and I fell in love with this movie. And it came out of nowhere. And it was completely unexpected from Jordan Peele. And he showed a new side to him that he never shown to anyone else in terms of his storytelling talents. And I think that it absolutely blew him up in Hollywood. Yeah, I love when like a, a comedic actor does dramatic roles or like a dramatic actor does horror films or they, they leave the niche that they've been doing for their entire career. Like Jordan Peele, his entire career was focused on comedy. I mean, it started in 2003 when he joined Mad TV. He got nominated for an Emmy for his 50 Cent parody song, Sad 50 Cent. He auditioned for SNL around 2008 because they were looking for somebody to play Obama, but they ended up having uh, the cast member Fred Armisen do it, and then eventually Jay Farrow took over that role. And then he and Kegel Michael K created Key and Peele, which is one of the best sketch comedy shows ever made. I still watch those sketches in my room at night at like 2 a.m. for no reason oh, yeah, on you YouTube. you fall into a black hole of those sketches. Yeah, because they're so funny, and you had no idea this guy was such a huge horror fan. And obviously, I, I assumed that he was well-versed in production because I'm sure they're very involved in their sketches and the sketches are high quality. Yeah, they're not directing, but they're show running. So they're like in charge of how this, how the scenes are playing out. So they're very much directing the whole series. Yeah. And that show is so well-made. Every sketch is high production value. The last two seasons, the last two seasons, especially the last season, huge production value. Yeah. And then he came out with get out. And I remember the trailer looked phenomenal and we were definitely going to go see it. It looks so interesting and, and unique. And then, um, it was kind of like this word of mouth explosion of the audiences across the country and the world going to see Get Out because I think at the first night it was like obviously a solid opening weekend, but then it just it continued for weeks and weeks where everyone's like, go see this movie. You got to see Get Out, even though it had like a budget of, I think, $3 million and everyone was just blown away by it. Yeah, this was produced by um, Blumhouse, that uh, horror independent uh, studio. And They've made everything from paranormal activity to this. And Blumhouse also made The Purge. So it's an extremely successful company where the owner, he believes that um, movies can work best if they're smaller budget because then they can focus on um, just the story, which is more authentic to whoever the storyteller is in terms of the director and writer. They don't have to uh, listen to studio heads 
and executives who want to put their input into a film. And that way he gives a filmmaker just a small budget to give them the freedom to do what they want without anyone else involved. And they have the creative freedom to make a great film. And that's why all of the Blumhouse movies are so successful because he allows filmmakers to do whatever they want and gives them complete freedom. And he did that with Jordan Peele. And you could tell because Get Out is so authentic and raw and, and original. And it's a perfect film, in my opinion. It, it marked the start of Jordan Peele's sure-to-be legendary career as a as a writer and director, producer. Um, definitely one of the most unique horror films this century. And it's just this slow burn of insanity. And it, it cripples you with this mystery and fear and intrigue for over an hour until we we get the eventual shocking reveal of truth and it just blows your expectations and predictions out of the water of what you think it might be about and jordan peele also strays away from all the modern horror cliches of jump cuts of of music just getting super loud for no reason to scare you and and also like a thing that happens so often in horror movies nowadays is these dream sequences which are the scariest parts of the movies but then the character wakes up and it has nothing to do with the actual plot. And that is seeing this over and over again playing out in horror movies nowadays is kind of driving me crazy because, yeah, it's a cool scene, but obviously it has nothing to do with the plot or the story. So then it's meaningless and it's just fluff. So or it's just a metaphor. Yeah. And so filmmakers throw like random scenes like that into their movies, but just because they can't think of anything that pertains to the story and that I that always takes me out of horror movies, but Jordan Peele's film, it's, it strays away from all of these cliches we've come used to in horror films nowadays, and that's why it works so well. And Ari Aster is another person who does horror in a great way without using those cliches. Yeah, and you can just see the influence of so many past horror films on him, and you can tell that Jordan Peele must have an like a huge collection of horror films, and just a massive fan. And at the same month that Get Out's release. He actually curated the Brooklyn Academy of Music film series called The Art of the Social Thriller. And he used the 12 films that films that most inspired the making of Get Out, including Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living Dead, The Shining, Candyman, The People Under the Stairs, Scream, The Silence of the Lambs, Funny Games, Misery, Rear Window, The Burbs, and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And all these films, you, you can see little bits and pieces of them in Get Out. There's one that is missing from that list that obviously was a major inspiration. That's Stepford Wives. Oh yeah, yeah, so for yeah sure. Stepford, I can see that. Stepford Wives absolutely was a huge influence on him for this film, and he brought that love he has of horror, and he he crafted his own unique story based on his experience as as a black man in America, and he brought a lot of great social themes into this film. But what I love about it is that it's not too heavy handed. It's not too uh, in your face. Um, it's not too showy. He he has all these ideas and he expresses them all, but he doesn't have a character like go on huge monologues or he shows you with the story rather than anything else. And so it's less in your face and more subtle. Yeah, obviously there are racial tones to this film and themes in it. But then when you f really figure out what's going on, it's 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 a little different. It's more in the realm of science fiction in a way or or fantasy kind of and. And that's what I love about this film is it is it transcends just one genre. It's not just a horror. It's not just a drama. It's not just a like a, a dark comedy. It's sci-fi too, which I love. I love that element of it. And absurdity. Yeah. It has that level of like absurdity of what of putting one person's mind into another person's body. It's ridiculous and it's crazy. 
but it mixes with the horror and the comedy and in a great way and that's why it works so well it's this mashing of genres that very few people can get right yeah it's like a fantasy sci-fi horror comedy it's wild and i love every minute of this movie and actually i got a chris funkel right here on my desk I've had he that. he's been chilling here for months now and we finally get to talk about get out because i think chris played by daniel kaluuya is one of my favorite characters in recent years for sure and this was daniel's breakout role for sure it solidified him as a leading man and i mean by leading man i mean think of like bradley cooper who was in a lot of decent movies and inside character and uh co-starring roles in ways but limitless was like his movie that proved that bradley cooper could be a leading man of big movies and get out did that for kaluuya you know some actors some actresses they have that leading quality some don't like a great actor who i love is jude law but he doesn't quite have that leading man leading actor thing he doesn't have it but daniel kaluuya definitely has it this episode is sponsored by writer duet the new standard for screenwriting software writer duet has paired up with raiders of the lost podcast to offer a very special promotion use writerduet.com slash raiders to use their 30-day free trial of any one of writer duet subscriptions writer duet has revitalized the way you write screenplays if you know anything about what writing a script is like you know the format is super weird if you're a screenwriter and your script does not look correct, it will get thrown in the trash by anyone inside the industry. So make sure it looks correct and proper. And the best way to do that is to get Writer Duet. They have cloud-based access from anyone, anywhere. You can literally co-write a script with a friend from across the world. Famous writers such as Christopher Ford, who wrote Spider-Man Homecoming, have been using Writer Duet regularly. And if you sign up for Writer Duet using our special promotion, James and I will read the first 10 pages of one of your scripts. Again, use writerduet.com slash raiders, writerduet.com slash raiders to use their 30-day free trial of any one of Writer Duet's subscriptions. He's an extremely talented actor, and uh, we've seen him before in, in a few UK productions, and my favorite role of his before this film was The Black Mirror. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Her episode in which she played a character who's uh, he's in this community that exercises to uh, create, to make monetary value in the digital area that they work in. And it's a great episode and he's fantastic in it. And that was my first experience ex of exposure to Daniel Kaluuya. And he showed his talents with this one and his talent is why he got the the, the role Jordan Peele saw how skilled he was on the audition because uh, obviously probably the most iconic image of this movie is Kaluuya's face with his eyes wide open frozen because he's put in the sunken place and then there's tears going down his face and that was the poster for a lot of the marketing campaigns of this film and I think it's the most iconic image of the movie and really just the one tier yeah, first. yeah the one tier 
And when they auditioned Kaluuya, they had him perform the scene. And Jordan Peele, he originally was thinking about maybe acting in it himself. Um, and then when he saw a talent like this guy comes into the audition and uh, Jordan Peele said that every time they did the scene, no, and they did it several times in this audition, Kaluuya was able to have his tear drop at the same exact moment in each part of the scene. So he has a great amount of control over his emotion and his physicality that very few actors have. And so that's why he got the role. Yeah, it's extraordinary. And you can tell when you're watching that scene where he's first hypnotized by uh, Missy for supposedly thinking he'll lose his, uh, his addiction to cigarettes. He, his eyes, obviously he's crying, but then throughout the scene, his eyes are just red. And it seems like he's been crying for hours because I'm sure he was on set for the entire night. And also day. keeping his eyes open. Yeah, so yeah. obviously his eyes are just beat red because he's that talented and he has that much control over his emotions. He can just try, cry on command anytime he wants. That's not easy to do. A lot of people need a lot of time to get into that headspace. And I think uh, very few actors are able to just do it on cue so easily like that. And then he got, before this, he was actually in Sicario, which we just talked about. And he's awesome in that movie. And he, he brings like this vulnerability to his characters in combination with charisma and confidence that I really love. And again, overnight sensation, just not just for Jordan Peele, but for... Daniel Kaluuya too because overnight star basically with Get Out and then he landed his role in Black Panther and the rest has been history for him. Yeah, and Lakeith Stanfield, this is one of his major breakouts as well and he's become a, a very prominent actor over the last few years but this was his break breakout too. Yeah, he's got an awesome role. He kind of plays two characters and even mm-hmm. two characters in the same, yeah, yeah, he in the does same body in a way. So yeah. he's phenomenal in this movie as well. And then uh, Rose is played by Allison Williams who's just as charming and, and quick-witted as is Chris is in the film and the first two acts of the film she's clearly shows she's or wants you to show think that she's very innocent very intelligent an open person in, in a lot of ways she seems like the perfect girlfriend yeah kind of like the girl next door like oh man like I, I'm gonna marry that girl the thing with Rose is she always seems to say the right thing in every situation in the first act of the film and every can, every situation she says the perfect thing and the, I love the more times you watch Get Out you pick on so many more little things that you didn't even notice before and when you watch her performance in the first two acts of this film you realize that she is putting on a performance and because obviously spoilers I'm sure you've all seen this she's done this act so many times like you said she always knows exactly what to say in every situation and this is a movie like you just mentioned it gets better on repeat viewings because you see all the little hints that Jordan Peele sprinkled throughout the first half of the film which as you become aware of how the film how the story ends it makes it more fun to watch on repeat viewings and we watched it recently to prepare for this and um, I did some research as well and found so many cool easter eggs that we'll I'll, we'll talk about as we talk about this episode then we have the Armitages played by how do you say that last Armitages Armitage Armitages Armitages I can't say this Armitage name. Armitages played by <laughs> who are Missy Dean and Jeremy um and then Rod played by Lil Rel Hari one of the funniest comedic supporting actor performances I've, I've seen in so many years. He's just hysterical in every scene, single scene he's in. T.S. Mother effing A. <laughs> and then uh, the groundskeeper and housekeeper, Walter and Georgina, play prominent roles as well in this film and uh, allude to a lot of this mystery and an intrigue in this environment at this estate or this house. And Jordan Peele smartly opens this film with an incredibly disturbing scene that grabs you and pulls you into the film in such a brilliant way. And um, it's the scene in which Andre um, is captured in the suburban neighborhood, and he filmed it in one take, and it's just a brilliant piece of filmmaking. I love it. Yeah, it's incredible blocking, and a lot of people might not understand how how complicated this is to do, especially 
you know, with, with two actors, you have a car in motion and all the camera setups have to be in the right place. Lighting. The car has to, yeah, everything has to end up in the correct place. And it's, it's definitely an accomplishment, especially the opening of the film. And especially with a character that you, you don't get a great look at Andre or you get him, you get to see him, but he just disappears for the entire length of the film. And you don't really, you don't even realize it's him when he pops up later on in the film because he looks so different. And one of my favorite parts about the scene, which I didn't learn until repeat viewings, is Andre's on the phone during the scene, and we don't know who he's on the phone with, but the person on the fil- on the phone, we can tell it's a woman's voice, and at one point, they tell him to stay put, and they'll find him. In reality, we don't know this yet, but Andre is on the phone with Rose, because he is her target for bringing into the family, which is the same thing she'll do with Chris, and... This is how Jeremy, who's driving the white car, is able to find Andre because Rose is on the phone with him and track they're tracking him through the cell phone. And it's a it's a crazy small detail that Jordan Peele doesn't tell us directly, but he insinuates that Andre will find out is uh, the pre- predecessor of Chris in this scheme of taking over the bl- bodies of black men and women. And Rose is at play in this scene without our without our awareness of it. However, you know, Chris is a little more fortunate. I mean, this is what Jim Hudson, the, the blind character later in the film, hints at where um, he calls Chris one of the lucky ones because he heard that Jeremy's wrangling methods are very uh, disturbing or, or uncomfortable for sure. And you can only imagine what a person like Andre has to go through when he's captured by Jeremy rather than someone like Chris who's fortunate enough, at least, obviously it's terrible to get kidnapped and have your body taken from you, yeah. but then to be, you know, act, not have the jujitsu and and obviously when we see the the Porsche later on inside the car and it's got that medieval looking mask that I'm sure he puts on the people he kidnaps. So it's a horrible experience, I'm sure, for Andre. And a crazy thing about the car is it's, um, it's a vintage Porsche and the Porsche... Porsche, I'm sorry. Porsche. We're going to offend somebody. And, and the car is white and it has all, it has a very dark and black interior. And this is a metaphor for the future of the film where um, black people become um, backseat passengers to their own body, which will end up being taken over by white people. Pretty crazy. That's pretty nuts. And then Jordan Peele, he uh, throws this really great title sequence into the film where um, they're driving in the forest and there's this blue font um, depicting the credits. And it's got this disturbing song. And his inspiration for this opening credit sequence was Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. And The Shining has the same bl- colored blue font on its opening title credits. And so that's why Jordan Peele did that for this film as a way to show his respect and love for The Shining. Super interesting. And then we're introduced to Chris. And it's a great little setup and scene for him. We get to learn about his character. He's a very clearly a successful person. He's a photographer. He's got a great apartment. Um, and then we're introduced to Rose at the same time too. Again, who seems like the perfect girl next door. And we have, you know, this great little back and forth between this clearly very loving couple who, who are very much into each other. And But he, he's about to go meet her parents. And he asks that question, you know, awkwardly, like, do they know I'm black? And then, again, Rose knows the perfect things to say every time to ease the tension, to, to get rid of 
Chris's uneasiness and worries. And she's like joking, like, she's like, uh, yeah, I told my mom and dad that my black boyfriend is coming over. But it's a very funny way that she delivers the line. Yeah, they, they both find it yeah. amusing. And it's it's so funny. And then she's like, my dad would have voted for Obama for a third time if he could have. And so they're <laughs> going to love you. And so it, it, what she does throughout the film is manipulate him and it makes him feel comfortable in these awkward situations. And as we'll learn, especially with that Obama line, is um, this is pretty much a script that she's used many times over the family as well, where they say the same things and set up the same conversations for each person they take over. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Manscaped.com. Currently, 2 million men are using Manscaped products. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. Their products are so legit. It's locked down. We're starting to open this country up, but you got to get prepared. So let's get your lawnmower 3.0 groomer. This thing has a built-in light. It's waterproof. It's soft to the touch. Their deodorizers are amazing. Their briefs are super comfortable. Their cologne is surprisingly awesome. So they've sent us pretty much everything, and we love every single one of the products they've sent us. Thank you, Kyle, our rep at Manscaped. Again, use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping year-round. Guys, get on this. Ladies and guys, these are great gifts for the men in your life. Thank you so much to everyone who's used our code so far. And then they're on their way to Darmitage's house. And obviously something happens on the way where they, they hit that deer. And it's it, this deer comes up multiple times in this film. And it's it's a very dark moment when they hit the deer on the highway. And then the deer, this image of a deer kind of crops up later on uh, when he's trapped in that games room at the end of the film. And I think that the deer in the film represents... Chris's grief of his past and the situation where he didn't call for help when his mom didn't come home, even though she, and he didn't know she was in a car accident, but she he, she just never came home that night. And he never called for help and could have saved her life eventually, he found out. And I think that every time we see the deer, Chris is thinking about his grief in his past and it, and it affects him that way. That's why he's always staring at it. And I think it leads also to his motivation to escape at the end of the film as well. I think that grief is what drives him to to leave. And he basically, l- later on in the film, claws and fights his way out to freedom. I think that's definitely a, a meaning for the deer. I think that also the deer represents Chris. And the deer and the Chris, the deer and Chris are always intertwined in terms of their device, as in terms of their relevance to the plot. So... The first time we see the deer, it's uh, it's basically attacked by the car and is uh, knocked unconscious and and it's um, unable to move anymore. And this was this is what happens to Chris eventually by the Armitages, where um, they attack him and and hinder him hinder him helpless and immobile. And then the next time we see the deer, it's hanging like a trophy on the wall, like you said, just how Chris is tied up like a trophy in the room. And then the deer is used by Chris to kill um, uh, Dean. Which means that even the deer is being used as a weapon, and Chris himself has become a weapon and a killer. And so I think that he and the deer are always intertwined. And while they're pulled over on the side of the road, a, a cop comes by, and we have the scene where the, the, the cop is trying to figure out what's going on. And he... By the way, that's the guy who plays Archer. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's right. He and Peel are old friends. Oh, man. I never <laughs> noticed that. And um, he asks for Chris's ID, despite the fact that he wasn't driving. And, and Rose comes to his defense and is and is protective of him which seems like at the moment the first time you watch this movie you're like wow what a great girlfriend like that's really amazing to to stand up to that cop like that 
And but what we don't realize at the time is she's trying to eliminate a paper trail of this guy. She doesn't want any record of him in any system that he was in the area of the Armitages in case obviously he's going to go missing at some point that they can't link it to her or to the family. Yeah, exactly. So she's just being smart, a, a smart sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there are a few hints in the first half of the film in which um, Jordan Peele shows that uh, Rose is a sociopath. And the first instance just happened right before this with the deer. And when the deer is hit by the car and Chris goes looking for the deer, Rose does not want to go near it, doesn't seem interested, and doesn't seem to be affected by it in any way. She shows, like, no emotion at the at the dying animal. And then the, the number one hint and clue of her being a sociopath that I think kind of goes under the radar um, is Jeremy's telling the story about Rose at the dinner table, and he mentions that um, his friend, when they were kids— Ran in when they had a party. He ran over to Jeremy with his mouth bleeding, saying that his sister, when they kissed, bit her tongue. And so I think that's an example of Rose being a young teen, being a sociopath and attacking a young boy when he kissed her. Yeah, well, growing up in this household, I mean, of course they're all gonna be psychopaths. Yeah. And then we have obviously the the entrance to the Armitages, and we have this this great way that they enter like the grounds of their of their home, and we get a very eerie situation you know that they, they have uh the groundskeeper who's just looking and staring at them like a, like a statue um and i love the way that peel opens this scene with with the introduction between the couple and then with the armitages the the, the dean and missy and he does it with a very wide shot he doesn't get in close at all and they're at the door greeting for several seconds and then we go inside the house and again it's another very wide shot and we're still not up close no close-ups no mediums of this interaction and it's really interesting that he chose to to go in that direction to show very wide shots of this very important moment that we've been dying to see for the last 15 minutes and in a way it's it's makes it f- you just feel like a spectator of the whole situation. Well, that's it. I think he did those shots because they're being watched. Because the first shot outside, the camera pulls back and we reveal Walter's shoulder, showing that he's watching them. And then the shot inside the house that's wide, I would say Georgina's watching him, watching them, although he doesn't show her. But you can, you can tell that she's watching them from another room down the hall. And everything seems okay in terms of the communication with, with Dean and Missy. They seem very normal. Um, and intelligent and, and nice people. And, and Dean himself, he, he gives a, a clue to his true uh, persona when he tells that little, he goes on that little tangent about the deer because they mentioned they hit the deer and then he, Dean's like, oh, I hate the deer. Like every deer that gets killed, I say that's that's a, that's like a, a good thing, like a, a notch off the belt or whatever. And this actually is a, a major clue to his true hit to his true um, personality of of hating black people because back in the day the term black buck as in buck like a deer the term black buck was used by racists um, to refer to um, black men and women who would not obey white superiors and authorities and so dean talking about hating the deer and wanting the deer dead is him saying that he hates black people and wants as many black people dead as possible and there's another amazing hint that Jordan Peele places in this in the scene of this the tour that Dean gives Chris of the house and it seems normal and he's obviously being very funny he's like I, I would have voted for Obama a third term term he's showing the the different artifacts from different cultures that he collects and you know Chris is just like uh-huh mm-hmm, yeah 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 I'm expecting this kind of conversation but then he stops Dean stops Chris at 
this kind of this wall full of portraits of his father, Roman Armitage, who was an Olympic runner. Almost, he was he was beat out on the team in the 1936 Olympics by Jesse Owens to qualify, and that's the Olympics that Jesse Owens went and won four gold medals in front of Hitler and in in Germany and in Berlin, and so it was a very historical moment for America for black athletes for black America and this is such a great hint and it's such an important plot point I think for the motivation of this family and creating coagula to steal the body of a black person because he says that his father almost got over it which means he never did and obviously you can t- you can assume that losing to Jesse Owens to qualify for the Olympics motivated Roman Armitage to to create this sort of idea or this cult society to to try and steal the bodies of of black people and and develop this procedure the coagula to to be, maybe become the next Jesse Owens or or at least perform at the level he never could in his original body yeah after losing that race roman decided that the black race was physically superior to the white race and that's why he became obsessed with trying to obtain the body of a black man himself um and this is why walter who we find out later on actually is roman um is obsessed with still sprinting and running because he still hasn't gotten over that race yeah obviously um just to skip ahead a little bit in the story there's the scene where walter's sprinting in the backyard while chris is going outside for a smoke in the middle of the night and it seems like um, Walter is sprinting at Chris to scare him or to almost hurt him in a way. But you don't realize if you – maybe the first time you watch this movie, you don't pick up on it, that you can tell Walter didn't even see Chris until the the floodlights, the motion sensor lights come on to illuminate him. Then he obviously moves out of his way. So it just seems like Walter, because he loves running and he just seems to be training and doing exercise, he just sprints in the backyard at night to kind of hide his abilities. Yeah, it's a, it's a great hint that I did not even notice in the first time I saw this film. It, it went right over my head. And then the next major hint of what's happening is the se- the iced tea scene on the patio in which um, Chris, Missy, Rose, and Dean are, are having uh, iced tea. And they're trying to get at his trauma, Chris's trauma, his personal problems. And um, so Missy brings up that he she can tell he... Dean, Dean and Missy can tell he has a smoking problem. Rose has probably told them already. Dean, Dean and Missy hint that she, she could help him with this this habit, help him with this problem. And she she immediately links up his smoking habit to his personal trauma and his mother's death. And she clinks her silver spoon on her teacup twice, which we'll see later on in the film a few times. And so she's connecting those two things for Chris emotionally, setting him up for the hypnotizing scene. When Missy clinks her spoon... She accidentally causes Georgina to to kind of snap out of her hypnosis for a moment, which causes her to overflow the Armitage's glasses and kind of break character for a minute. And the behavior seems very odd, especially to us and to Chris. Um, but Missy and Dean and Rose seem to know exactly what happened. That's why she tells her to lie down. Um, and then also, there's a great hint that Georgina is actually the grandmother when. She's filling the the iced tea glasses before that moment. She actually skips Chris, walks past him without filling his iced tea up, and goes to the next member of the Armitage family because she's a racist and deems black people lesser than her. This episode is also sponsored by MoviePosters.com. Use our promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. If you're watching our show on YouTube, we hope you are. 
Our set is decked out with these posters this company sent us. These are high quality, best printing you can pay for. They have all sorts of sizes of posters. They have every single movie you can think of. Whatever you want, framing, backlighting, movieposters.com can do it. Use our special promo code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order. We also have partnered with them to start selling our own custom Raiders of the Lost podcast movie posters. James and I have made three of these posters. Feel free to check them out on their website. Uh, these are spoofs of The Shining, Lethal Weapon, and our own very our own special custom Raiders one. Again, use Raiders15 at movieposters.com. Raiders15 to get 15% off your order today. And then we're introduced to Jeremy, the brother. And then we have this very intense dinner scene, which it opens okay and pleasant enough. And you can tell Jeremy's kind of a sketchy, shady guy. Clearly likes to drink a little bit too much, it looks like. And he kind of starts interrogating Chris after he tells the story about his sister. But he's interrogating Chris about his athletic background specifically. And if he has any martial arts training or jujitsu or anything like that. And I think the first time you watch this movie, is just like asking sports questions because, you know, that's, what, guy, macho. that's what guys talk about. Yeah. We talk about sports and wrestling. And Jeremy wants to obviously show off that he does jujitsu. But the second and third time I watched this, I realized that Jeremy, he's prepping and learning about Chris for eventually later on when he's going to have to physically subdue him at some point if he has to, if it comes to that. And that he wants to test out this jujitsu on Chris to kind of get a gauge of how strong he is, how athletic he is, and, and if it'd be an intense fight back. But I think this, because that's obviously his method of wrangling and capturing uh, potential people to steal the bodies of in this film. So I think that Jeremy, the whole purpose of this dinner, even his parents are watching closely, they don't let him go too far to learn about Chris's athleticism from him. That's a great point. I didn't think of that. I have another, I think there's another, another motive of Jeremy at the dinner party. And at the dinner table regarding the jujitsu conversation, I think that Jeremy uh, wants to be an MMA fighter, but he doesn't think that he can because he feels like he's genetically inferior to someone like Chris. And so that's why I think he's obsessed with um, Chris in terms of his physicality and genetic makeup. And he wants, I think that Jeremy wants Chris's body for himself. He wants to be um, the in control of Chris's shell. That's why he mentions, like, if Chris really put in the work, he could become a monster, a beast in the in the ring, in the octagon, because Jeremy wants to be that. And this is why, at the end of the auction, later on in the film, the silent auction, um, when Jim Hudson wins the bet, the when Jim Hudson wins um, Chris's body, it cuts to Jeremy, and he's sitting alone, and he looks very upset and disillusioned. And I think it's because... He realized he's not going to get Chris's body and Jim Hudson's going to get it. So I think Jeremy, he wants Chris's body more than anything. I think we just blow each other's minds right there. Yeah. Wow. I think you're right too. I think we're both right. Two smart guys. Two wicked smart guys on Raiders of the Lost podcast here <laughs> who see movies differently even though they're twins. Anyways. You tell your friends about it. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> and this is leads to the scene where Chris has to sneak out in the middle of the night for a cigarette because he's obviously stressed out about this awkward day he's been having at night. And um, this is when he sees Walter Sprinkton again. But then he also sees Georgina in the mirror just kind of like petting herself like a doll. Like like it's not even her. Like she's like it's, – it's like what you would do to, to your favorite figurine if you were like a young person with, with dolls or something like that or, or to your own child or something. Like look, look at this. What is this body? It doesn't seem like it's even her body, but we don't know that at the time. It's very, it's very eerie and weird. They don't say, but she must have taken over Georgina's body relatively recently. And so she's still 
um take she's she's still new to it and she's i think she's in love with how she looks she looks young and she looks beautiful and before that she was probably very elderly so i think that she's just still um profoundly hypnotized by her new body and just loves looking at it and then chris ironically himself becomes hypnotized which he didn't want to happen and daniel's acting in the scene with missy is phenomenal and it's a very simple it's a very simply shot too it's just a couple medium shots before we go into the sunken place but daniel kaluuya and his performance it makes this this scene feel like it's a, an eternity because it's so powerful and, and emotional and he's paralyzed and he can't move and he's fighting back these tears and and missy is somehow hypnotized him without him realizing it and and then he finally eventually sinks into the floor. And it's just, it's one of the most powerful scenes in the film. And this little interrogation of Missy on Chris reveals that um, Rose, when she she selects new people to bring into this world um, and to set them up with this scheme, she seems to have a certain criteria that people need to fit uh, in her selection process. And Chris fit the bill perfectly. So she's looking for people who don't have immediate family. So Chris um, is an orphan. His mother died. He has no other immediate family. Um, they need to have some kind of bad habit that they can be, hip, have hypnotized out of them. Uh, hence the cigarette smoking that gets them to accept the idea of being hypnotized voluntarily. And then they need to be either attractive or in physically good shape in order for the other people in the community to want to bid to and to take control of their bodies. So they need to have that uh, physical attractiveness or good shape physicality-wise. And they also need to have... Uh, personal trauma from their in their lives hence chris having extreme personal trauma with his mother's death and so all those things are part of the criteria that rose is looking for in people and chris was perfectly suited to it yeah missy seems to use chris's grief to hypnotize him in this scene and talking about his mother and can you hear the rain and and what'd you do and watching tv and we also get a little a little foreshadow of, of the thing that he does with the chair when he's when he's feeling these nervous feelings and he's and he's dealing with that trauma and the grief that he never wants to face anymore and he he scratches the handles of the chair he says that he scratches his he scratched his bed when he was a kid yeah too. so yeah in, in this shot with him as a kid he's scratching the handles yeah. as well and so this obviously is going to be a foreshadow for later on in the film and when he falls into the sunken place you you're not expecting it to happen what, what the way that peel visually shot this because it's it's beautiful what he did and it's mesmerizing and there's the loud uh brass and strings the loud string score going at the same time and it's it's such a nightmare to watch chris sink lower and lower into this area and this to this abyss inside of his own body and this is actually a perfect uh parallel to that night when he was a child and he so he tells Missy that when he was watching television, he was like in a way hypnotized by the television and he failed to call for help because he kind of just sunk into the, the bed and kind of couldn't move or have any control over what was happening. And that's why he never made the call to 911. And so and he's staring at the, the small TV screen and. The same thing happens when he falls into the sunken place. There's that tiny screen in the distance. He's in the darkness. And once again, he's kind of paralyzed and unable to move or do any perform any kind of action. And he's lost control of himself. So this is a perfect metaphor to what happened that fateful night when he was a kid. And then the next day, Walter and Chris have this this conversation. It's kind of weird. He, like Chris walks up to him. He's, he's thinking he's going to be able to actually like, connect with somebody here. 
Um, but, but Walter doesn't really seem to understand the, the way that Chris talks and, and his jargon. And he seems very awkward and, and seems like a, from a different era or a different world, the way he speaks. And Walter's referring to Rose as like top of the line. And it, it did, did it work with Miss Armitage? You were in there for a while. Did it work? And Chris kind of thinks that he's jealous of Rose and he brings it up to Rose. And it's kind of a funny situation where she's like, do you think I have a chance? <laughs> so again, it seems like Rose has been pressed with these questions dozens of times and she always knows the perfect way to ease the tension. Yeah, I mean, it's you have to believe that every person that she's brought there has noticed how strange things are. And so these are situations, like you just said, that have probably been brought up many times. So she has the perfect pre-organized pre, um, responses for them. Yeah, and Rose forgot to tell Chris and forgot in general, according to her, that there was this big party, this annual get-together at the Armitage's house that's happening that day. And what we don't realize until later on in the film is that this whole the whole party, it's all for him. And he's it's like a showcase. Yeah, we don't know it yet, but you know, we get there. And it's just a bunch of wealthy older white people, and then I think there's just the one, um, the one wealthy Asian man that's there as well. And they all seem to just be. It's it's weird. It's, it's hard to say that they're being polite, but it's like forced politeness in a way. But they're in a very awkward way, and they're they're asking all these weird questions. Like the the guy who's who's a golfer. He's like, oh, do you golf? Like, let's see your swing. Tiger's the best I've ever seen. Or or the woman who's feeling Chris's muscles and like just says asking how handsome. Yeah, asking if they're better in bed than yeah, white people. Says how handsome he is. And yeah. and there's the other guy who says fairer skin has been in favor for the past couple hundred years, but black is in fashion now. And at this point, as an audience member, the first time watching this movie, you're like, what the hell is going on? Why are these people being so uncomfortably racist in front of him right to his face and it, obviously we know there's a racial tone but we don't know what they want from chris yet there's also this feeling that everyone knows something that we don't and that chris doesn't everyone else seems to be privy to something to the situation itself and there's a hidden meaning behind the whole party itself yet we and chris have no idea what's going on and, and jordan peele tells it perfectly he's such a great director and writer where he keeps us like totally confused just in the same same shoes as chris and i think it's a brilliant way to depict this scene if you watch closely every one of these wealthy white people they arrive to the house driving a black car meaning they all wish to be in a black vehicle hence being in a black body very clever very clever and then uh chris uses his lens and his camera to kind of avoid people and to scope out the party and then he sees another black guy at uh at like the buffet table and he's like oh i'm gonna go talk to this guy and and he gets up to him and it's another black person who doesn't seem to know how to communicate with chris the way that chris wants him to communicate with him and it's a very uncomfortable situation but this is lakeith again but he's this person named Logan, and he talks like an old, rich, white guy. And it's it's a great acting performance by Lakeith. It's, it's phenomenal. His accent and his his pacing and his, his mannerisms, his expressions yeah. in general on his face. He's, he's just so good at it. And, and you can kind of see in, on the look in his face upon second viewings, like he seems to be happy that it's working. Yeah. And he's with... It seems to be married to this very old, white, wealthy woman, and it's kind of an uncomfortable situation. And this kind of the first time I saw it, got my brain ticking. Like, is what Rod said true? Is it like really like a sex slave thing? Is this what's going on in this movie? Because Rod's joking about that the whole film. He's like, sex slaves, sex slaves, sex slaves. <laughs> and uh, one of the funniest moments is when 
or uncoverable moments is when Chris goes to to dap him with a pound, and then uh, Logan just grabs his hand with his with his palm and like shakes it, and you can clearly tell that this guy must have been trapped in the suburbs for years or something to not know how to to communicate and and give a like a physical dap to to, to Chris. And also, he looks familiar to Chris. Um, we'll find out that he actually kind of knew knew the guy a little bit, and then uh, Andre and. Right after this, he watches as Logan and his wife are speaking to a, a few other people at the party. And Logan is like showing his entire body and self off to the people. And they seem like very uh, uh, entertained and applaud him. And it's, he's like kind of showing himself off. And so at first it's confusing the first time you see this movie. But then the second time you watch it, you're like, he's showing off that he successfully transferred his mind into this black man's body. And now it worked and he is this person and he's this new form of Logan, and everyone else is very excited and happy for him. And so it's like he's presenting like this new car he bought, but it's him. And then Chris meets uh, a new and important character named Jim Hudson, who's a, a blind art dealer. And he actually knows who Chris is, and he's an admirer of his work. And he's a blind art dealer who has someone describe in great detail works of art and portraits that he purchases for his, for his gallery. And for a moment... When Chris is talking to Jim, you just have this sense of relief in a way that they kind of connect. And they, they both talk about how life isn't fair. And they say shit ain't fair. And Jim Hudson calls all the other people at that place ignorant. And, and we think, like, at least there's somebody normal at this party. Someone understands Chris in a way or understands what he's going through because he as well is dealing with great obstacles in life with being blind. And then it gets even weirder. This party, you don't think it can get any worse. And then, uh, obviously, Chris notices that Georgina's up in his room, and so he goes to investigate, and he goes up the stairs, and as soon as he walks at the top of the stairs and get onto the second floor, everyone in the house just goes dead silent. And it's at this point we know that, dude, something is going on in this film. We don't know what it is yet. And everyone seems to be in cahoots for some reason. Like I said earlier, everyone seems to know something that we all don't. And this, and then there's a situation with Georgina right after this where, once again, Chris finds that his phone is unplugged, even though he's been trying to charge it for the last two days, and Georgina keeps unplugging it. And then Rose in the other room asks Georgina to apologize to him, and there's this very awkward scene where Georgina, just like Walter earlier, speaks to him in this very old dialect, as if she is from a different era. She seems to be cracking and losing her hypnosis again, just like earlier with the iced tea scene. I think the reason for this, because there's no Missy there to hit the tea kettle, to hit the teacup with her spoon. But I think what happened, the reason why she almost broke again in this scene is because of the way that Chris is speaking to her, um, like one black person to another black person. And G Georgina inside of her body as a passenger has become more um, motivated to try and break free. Because because of Chris. It also might seem that because, like you said earlier, that the Georgina, she seems to, this is a new experience for her having this new body, being the grandmother deep down inside, really, that maybe when it's when it's a fresh body and it's, it's been a recent procedure of the coagula, that it's kind of a back and forth battle between the persons trapped inside whose body it is with the person who's taking over the body. So maybe, maybe the first, like, couple months or first couple years it's kind of a back and forth struggle until you see someone like walter who never really has that situation where he's he's fighting back with the person that's of the body he stole until the flash later on in the film yeah that's a great point and also i just want to mention uh 
obviously the behavior of of the servants of of Walter and of Georgina. Yes, it's weird because of how they speak. Because yes, they're older people, but they also behave very strangely because inside they they're the grandparents, so they they aren't servants. You know what I mean? When when Rose hasn't brought someone to the house, they're probably still the matriarch and patriarch of the family. You know, you can understand that they're probably they're just another member. They're still members of the family, and so when someone is brought to the house, they have to put on this act of being a housemaid, of being a gardener or groundskeeper. So that's why they also why they always act so strange around Chris because they're trying to blend in as these servants when in reality they aren't servants. And then we have the flash scene with Logan. And this is where Chris, he recognizes this guy and he can't believe the way he's talking and the way he's dressed and who he's there with. And he's he's trying to take a flash a photo of him and he accidentally lets the flash off when he takes the photo with his, with his smartphone. And for a moment, Logan freaks out on him. He's screaming at him to get out. He's bleeding from the nose and he's crying and then he's dragged away by everyone. And Chris has no idea what's going on. But obviously, it's, we find out later that that Andre was trapped inside there. That's really Andre. But Logan is this old wealthy white man that took over his body. And the flash of a camera seems to lift the hypnosis temporarily. I think that the reason why Jordan Peele decided on a flash is because um, these characters who are lost within the sunken place and their passengers watching it happen um, from a distance is very much like uh, being John Malkovich. They're just watching what's happening is I think that he's saying that um, most of us have just become like passengers in life, just kind of watching um, TV or looking at social media. And we become kind of mindless in the way we carry our lives. And we've kind of lost motivation to do a lot of things. And we've, uh, we've gotten to the point where we allow ourselves to just distract ourselves endlessly and I think that the flash is meant to be like a jolt to wake up. And that's why they wake up from the flash. It's like he's jolting us awake to pay attention and to become our true selves again and to wake up. And then two very important scenes happen. Chris and Rose take that walk and they have that conversation where where Chris, he, he confesses to Rose about his past and his grief and how he blames himself for his mother's death because... While he sat and watched TV and his mother was late for hours, he never called anybody and he found out that he could have saved her life because she just died alone on the side of the road in her car wreck with the rain pouring on her. And th this is important because it builds a ton of trust at this moment between Chris and Rose and between the audience and Rose because Rose at this point in the film, for a first time audience, we think that she's there with Chris and she has no idea really what's going on. There's, it seems impossible that she's part of whatever's going on. Be yeah, exactly. Because as crazy as her family is and as weird as all these white people are, to Chris, Rose still seems like an outsider to them. Like she has broken free from this mentality that the family has. And that's why he trusts her so much. And at the same time, Dean leads Sparklers in Bingo. And again, this is about an hour into this movie when we finally understand that Chris is being auctioned off to these wealthy white people. What for? We don't know yet. Is it a sex slave thing like Rod thinks? We don't know. But clearly there's a sale made of Chris with the giant portrait of him and then with the bingo cards. And he's, seen, he's sold to Jim Hudson for what I'm assuming is $10 million when he puts up all 10 of his fingers. Yeah, I would say, yeah. And so clearly Chris just got bought. We don't know what for to be a slave, to be a sex save. That's kind of what we're assuming the first time we watch this movie. And then after this moment, um, later after the sun sets in the evening and the party guests are leaving, 
uh, Chris and Rose arrive back at the house and Chris wants to get the hell out of Dodge as quickly as possible. When he's alone for a moment, he's he's not super, he's not scared yet, but he want he definitely wants to get out of there. He's just freaked out. And then out just kind of as a, a gag without thinking too much of it, he sends that photo of Andre to Rod and Rod immediately calls him back and tells him that's Andre. He recognizes immediately and then we learn that Andre is someone they both kind of know. This is what really freaks Chris out. Then he gets scared. And just like with the film Us, Jordan Peele makes references to Alice in Wonderland. And just like how Alice goes through a small door, Chris finds a small door in Rose's room where when he enters it, he finds photographs of several black people that Rose has dated. And then he finds photographs of both Walter and Georgina in situations that insinuate that Rose dated the both of them. And clearly he just realized that Rose is in on whatever's going on. She's been dating and bringing back all these black men and, the and women in women because the order of the photos, it shows that Walter was second to last. And then Georgina was the last person that she brought back probably before Andre because it was, it was Jeremy that brought Andre home. Yeah. So it's clear that I think again, we're right in assuming that there's like a reason why, because it's so recent, that's why Georgina's inner person is trying to claw back out. But this is obviously when you're watching this and you're in Chris's shoes, you're freaking the F out. Jordan Peele uses color in an interesting way in this movie. And this is an instance of the color where uh, all the photos are in a, in a uh, pristine red box. And you see the color red used earlier during the party. All of the party guests, all the wealthy white people, they're all wearing black, white, and red. And I think they're wearing black and white because it's going to be the blending of both races into one body. And then red obviously could be seen as a, a color representing evil and power. And then also a really cool part of that party is there are several moments where the, the white people are talking, asking Chris about his physicality. And while he's answering these questions, he's standing next to Rose. Now, their wardrobe is very particular. So Chris is wearing a blue button-up with white buttons. And then Rose is wearing a striped shirt with red and white stripes. And when, they stand, when they're standing next to each other, they look like an American flag. Wow, that's mind-blowing. And speaking of Rose, she... Uh, He's trying to find those keys. You got those keys, Rose? Get those keys, Rose. Get those keys. Where are those keys at? And then um, we know she's in on it. He knows she's in on it. And he's just trying to get out of the house. And this is where the family corners him. And he's in that situation where Rose finally gives it up. And she's like, these keys? <laughs> and she drops the act. And it's all for them against him. And this is where Jeremy comes into play momentarily. And he's got that lacrosse stick. Before there's any kind of altercation, Missy clinks her spoon on her cup and... Chris falls to the floor like a light drops down and he falls into the sunken place and he wakes up in that game room and this is where he's tied up with the belts. He can't get free. It's super intense. And then Jordan Peele does that brilliant reveal with the camera above his head where it shows the blank TV and then it turns on. He's forced to watch this incredibly awkward and disturbing film, short film about about this family, the Armitages and this like cult that they're a part of and, and the coagula procedure and how they started. And again, we see Roman, the Roman Armitage, the the almost Olympic runner who lost out to Jesse Owens. And we can, again, assume that that was his main motivation to try to figure out how to do this, figure out how to steal somebody else's body. But he needed his son, Dean, who was a neurosurgeon, to complete the process because Roman had the idea and the concept 
but thanks to Dean, they're a they were able to carry out physically the transformation of uh, one person's mind into another person's body. And it's very cultish too, because he's talking about how both of them can be a part of something better and something perfect. And it's just so creepy and eerie to like want to create a different kind of person. And it also shows the superiority that these people feel compared to black people because they deem black people, these people in the film deem black people as physically superior, but themselves as mentally superior. And so they think that the perfect being would be their white mind inside of a black body. And so I think that's what the whole scheme of the Armitage is, is to create this com combination of their white minds, which they deem as superior and the obviously very racist. Yeah. And the black bodies, which they deem as physically superior and combining those two forces. And then that deer is right above the TV, which is going to come into play. And then at the same time, Rod is, you know, he's TSA, so he's investigating shit. And so, <laughs> I love when he's talking to the detectives. He's like, I'm TSA, so we basically have the same training. Sometimes We actually probably have more training than you, but that's, you know, I'm not, I don't want to talk for about a different that. Yeah, time. It's a different time. And so it's such a funny scene because he's talking to the detective and she's, he's like, oh, my, my boy's missing. And she's like, oh, my God, your boy's missing. How long? He's like, oh, no, no, my friend. <laughs> Chris, and he, he went away with his girlfriend for a weekend <laughs> <laughs> and so then he tells him the story where he thinks that these white these crazy white people are abducting black people brainwashing them and then turning them into sex slaves and then the detective she just like doesn't react and then she brings in a couple other black detectives and, and officers and they're just listening intently to to rod tell his story and then they all start dying laughing. And she's like, don't tell me I never did anything for you. It's just the, the funniest scene in the movie. And then one of them goes, and then she goes, white girls get you every time. So it's just really funny that like none of these officers are taking me seriously at all. Because Peel sets it up brilliantly where when she says, hold on and brings in the other officers, you think that they're going to take it seriously. And so it's great comedy that only like Jordan Peel knows how to tell. And then we learn about the coagula. It's this... this this sort of transfusion because we get the the inner link between Jim Hudson who's on the surgery table and he explains the situation and a sliver of Chris will remain in, in limited consciousness somewhere deep inside his body. He can see, he can hear, but his existence will be only as a passenger, an audience member, while he lives in that sucking place for the rest of his life. And I can only imagine I, – I couldn't imagine like a worse fate, honestly, for a human being to to live as a as a passenger deep inside their own subconscious while someone else is driving and using their body. It's it's an insanely unique and interesting and terrifying co uh, concept. And what makes Hudson a really fascinating character is that he's not interested in anything about race, uh, black or white or anything. All he wants from this is – his sight back he wants his sight back and he wants chris's eyes he wants chris's artistic eye and his just ability to see and so that's what he's interested in and that's what he paid for yeah because chris asks him why black people and he's like who knows people people want to change but again he wants something much deeper he wants that eye man and then chris's saving grace we come to find out was that habit he has of scratching chairs that he developed during his grief and trauma as a child. He begins to open up the leather on the arm armrest of it, and he notices that there's cotton inside of the fabric. And he looks at the cotton with uh, interest, and then it cuts away. And we don't know what happened after this, but then um, he's woken up by the television, which is doing the teacup spoon clinking on the teacup. Chris is 
panic because he knows he's going to be hypnotized, and then he is, we think, hypnotized by the the clinking of the teapot of the teacup. And then um, while this is happening, uh, Dean is preparing Hudson for surgery by slicing open his skull. And then, and this is a really interest, intense moment because Jordan Peele is like blasting that score in your ears. And and in this moment, it, it looks like Dean kind of feels godlike in a way because he is performing godlike procedures to put the mind of somebody in somebody else. And so you can just see the look on his face that he he thinks he's like, bigger than human in a way he seems to he like says a prayer to himself we don't hear what he says but it seems like he's saying some kind of prayer or something in preparation but to just to see the two skulls prepped or the one skull prepped in in the two medical beds and yeah it's just terrifying yeah and and then jeremy's job is to bring uh, the the hypnotized um unconscious chris into the operating room and when he enters the game room um just as, as after he unlashes chris Chris attacks him with a croquet ball, with a cricket ball, and bashes his head in. And Chris stands up, and he pulls out cotton out of his ears. And ironically, we learn that Chris used the cotton stuffing of the chair to to plug his ears so that he wouldn't hear the clinking of the spoon on the cup. And this is ironic because many of the slaves in America, pre-Civil War, were forced into labor of picking cotton. And so the symbol of early slavery was used as his saving grace in this situation. Yeah, and again, I after he, what he thinks kills Jeremy, he looks at the deer again. I can't help but constantly think that that the deer is, is grief motivating him, or he's he's finally using the grief and 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 facing that trauma of his past. And instead of not doing anything, he's acting. Boy, does he act when he he jams that those antlers right into Dean's throat and chest. Yeah, and we don't just see the physical strength of Chris in the scene of his escape from this house of horrors, you want to say, but also the high intellect that he has, like when he's in that jujitsu headlock from Jeremy, who's clearly going to make him pass out in a couple seconds, and he's kicking the door, and then he realizes that I can trick him into kicking the door again and stabbing him in the knee, so he's very intelligent, too, you can tell. Yeah, and also there's that great scene with Missy where she tries to stab him with the letter opener, and he just lets it lets her stab his hand. So that the the knife gets stuck in his hand, and he uses that and turns it into her own face. And I, I don't know what he did exactly, but it looked like he jammed the letter opener right into her eyeball through her brain. Yeah, and we also have the incredibly awkward moment where Rose is in her bedroom with <laughs> headphones, eating cereal. She's eating Fruit Loops, except for the the cereal is separate from the milk, and she just eat she eats this the Fruit Loops, then drinks the milk from a straw. And I I think Jordan Peele, I, I read that he he's like. We have to shoot the scene in tomorrow. What's the weirdest, creepiest thing we can think of having you do? And that is super creepy to have. While she's doing this, she's she's searching for her next her next victims. I think she searches what NCAA basketball recruits or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's so messed up. <laughs> but while this is happening, Chris escapes and he accidentally hits Georgina, which alerts Rose to the noise, and she leaves the house with the, with a rifle in her hand. And as as Chris is driving away. He decides to take Georgina because when he looks back at Georgina unconscious on the road, it makes it reminds him of his mother. And so he does he can't leave her to die because he knows that deep down inside there's still that Georgina is inside. She's still a passenger in that mind. And that's why Jordan Peele cuts to that moment of Georgina crying in the bedroom. And so George, so Chris takes Georgina into the car, but it works out against him because she wakes up and the woman attacks him because she knows that he's been killing his, her family members. And then he crashes the car into the tree. And then Walter comes with Rose, who has a gun, and 
Get him, Grandpa. Get him, Grandpa. He, he he runs and tracks Chris down, tackles him. But Chris, again, he's very clever. He pulls out his phone, uses that flash, and brings the internal person of Walter's body back to consciousness and back to control of the body. And he turns the gun on Rose and shoots her. Then he blows his own head off because I would do the exact same thing if I was whoever Walter really was. I would end my life in a second. Yeah, because even though he's in control of the body now, who knows how long that would last? It could be an indefinite thing, but it could be a temporary thing. It's and, probably just a couple of minutes. Yeah, and the in the in Roman could gain control again. And so, like, you don't, you can't blame him for for blowing his own brains out. And Jordan Peele ends this film brilliantly, where he's he has Chris strangling Rose, and she just is smiling at him while he's doing it, and then w- he stops. He stops because he sees that she's getting pleasure out of it. Yeah, and also I think that he—I he, don't know if he could do it to her because I'm sure there's some part of him was in love with her. You know? No, I no. I think what happened was he was playing. He was he wanted to kill her, and then he's strangling her, and she's she's struggling. But then she she smiles at him, and it shows him that she's like loving it and enjoys it, and so that's what gets him to stop. Yeah, probably. And then we get the the lights, the red and blue lights of oh, what we flashing think is a on his face. Car. And obviously, my we all, stomach dropped. We all know what's gonna happen. He's gonna get arrested. And he's gonna go to jail for killing all these white people. This I heard a collective man. sigh in the theater. Yeah, a, a, unreal. This black man's totally gonna get arrested for killing all these black people and and all these white people. I'm sorry. <laughs> This black man's definitely going to get arrested for killing all these white people, which he did in self-defense. But thank God the door opens, and it's T.S. motherfucking A. <laughs> when it says he opened the door opens, and it says airport security on the door. <laughs> the best moment in theaters I've had in a the long time. The sigh of relief in the theater, and then just the boisterous laughter when you see Rod. It's It was an unbelievable moment. It was so much fun. We saw this opening weekend, so this theater was packed. It erupted. It was similar, I think, in feeling to when Captain America is, is worthy of the hammer in Avengers. Yeah, it, it, it had that same, yeah. like, antis- like exc- the scream from the audience. It was yeah. intense. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And then it ends, and it's just a powerful movie. And well, the- I, love, I love when they get in the car. <laughs> Rod and Chris are sitting there, and, and Chris is covered in blood and sweat, and he's just... Looking down, just like what he just experienced is was just absolutely horrific. And then Rod's just sitting next to him. You can tell he wants to say something, but he's like, <laughs> he's like, you can tell he's like, I don't know, should I say it? Yeah, maybe? And then he just goes, I told you not to go in the house. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I told you not to go in that house. <laughs> it's like, obviously, that was gonna happen. <laughs> he's like, How'd you find me? I'm T.S. Motherfucking A. We, we handle, handle shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's become common knowledge. If you haven't, it's a really cool fact if you don't know this. But Jordan Peele made two endings. He made this ending. And then he made another ending in which in which the flashing lights were, were from a police cruiser. And a cop did show up and did arrest Chris. And the final scene is Chris talking to Rod through glass because he's in prison so Rod's visiting him in prison and he was arrested for killing the Armitages and Jordan Peele Peele filmed both these endings because he wasn't sure which one he wanted to end with but then he decided that for this story he needed to have a positive ending he needed to have some kind of like heroic ending and he felt that having the darker ending it just seemed too grim and he didn't want the audience to walk out of the theater feeling so down and so so hopeless and filled with despair and so he wisely chose the comedic entertaining relieving ending where it's cathartic and chris gets away he kills these horrible people and we laugh about it and 
he's rescued and i think that that's one of the reasons why the movie is so great is because the ending ends on a high note i agree 100 percent. and you can actually watch this on youtube and in the alternate ending rod explains that the armitage house burned down and so chris's only way of of so all the evidence is so burned. it's all gone oh, all wow. the evidence is gone oh, hence the fire in the in, in the, the surgery yeah room. and so the only way that chance would be able to get off is to to name all the exes that rose brought home but he can't remember any, any of their names obviously so so chris you know he accepts what he did and he's like i'm good i stopped it whatever it was so it's over but it's it's you're right it's it's not as genius of an ending i don't think as the original one yeah you needed that you needed the levity and we, we, needed, we needed that like that moment to just like sigh and relief and, and laugh it makes you enjoy the film so much more yeah 100 percent. and this film it deserved the oscar for best screenplay it's so original so brilliant so intriguing and shocking and unpredictable i think jordan peele it was a genius story of by him and he deserves every accolade he gets in the future. I can't wait to see the rest of his movies. Hopefully, what I've read is that all of his movies are going to generally be horror-esque with socio-political themes. So, like us, and he's got another film in pre-production. Um, he's always going to be making entertaining stories that make you think about the world at large, which I think is great. Yeah, he's an incredible talent, and I can't wait to see the rest of his career. All right, that wraps our episode on Get Out. We really hope you enjoy this. Make sure to check out RaidersOfTheLostPodcast.com to check out all of our sources of content. To find our merch, you can get this cool hat right here in black or white. You can get great hat. t-shirts, stickers, everything, sweatshirts. And thank you so much for tuning in. Don't forget to subscribe if you're watching on YouTube. Follow, hit the notification bell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to us right now. And also, don't forget to check out our Patreon if you want to contribute to us. We have the... Three different tiers, $2, $5, or $10. Every dollar we get is appreciated. It makes the show better. We we love all of you who have already joined our Patreon. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost podcast. Hit that subscribe button and notification bell. Listen to the audio formats of Raiders of the Lost podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Monday and Thursday. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast.